This is Speaking of Stories, Conversations Between Authors. In today's episode, Dr. Michael Mosley, the man who in 2012 presented the 5-2 Fast Diet, is a British television presenter and producer who, in his latest book, The 8-Week Blood Sugar Diet, explains how to eat to beat diabetes. Because in Britain we have targets, and if you don't give diabetics medication, then you get money taken away. You may be saving the state twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, but the state will actually take another ten thousand away for you for helping someone to lose weight. How mad is that? And Dr. Anders Hansen, this Swedish physician and psychiatrist, explains in his latest book, Brain Power, how exercise can help you raise your stress tolerance, improve your memory and maximize your creativity and intelligence. It's a, almost a miracle not everyone is overweight. And, and I mean, it makes total sense to stay in, in the sofa and going on sapping for another show because you should save your energy. So, so, so we are lazy by nature. You're listening to Speaking of Stories. My name is Dr. Michael Mosley. And my name is Dr. Anders Hansen. Chapter 1. What's the deal with diets? So, um, Michael, you're the founder of the so-called 5-2 diet, which quickly became very popular in Sweden, and it gained both positive and negative feedback in the media. And some people argued that it could actually increase eating disorders. Uh, can you tell me a bit about the diet and, and, and how you dealt with the massive feedback? Sure. The reason I actually invented the diet in the first place is because um, four years ago I discovered I was a type 2 diabetic. This was from a kind of random blood test. And my father had died of diabetes-related illnesses at the age of 74. So I could see the direction I would go. And my GP was keen that I start on medication straight away. But I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. And I started looking at the research and I came across this thing called intermittent fasting. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So I persuaded the editor of a BBC science program called Horizon to let me go off and make a film about intermittent fasting. And he said, yes, that would be fine, but I don't want you to talk about diabetes. I think that's not going to be an attractive subject. I just want to talk about life extension. So I go off and I make the film, and in the course of that, I discover 5-2. The idea is that you simply cap your calories two days a week and the other five days you kind of eat normally. And I looked at all the research evidence. I was particularly struck by studies which were done in the National Institutes on Aging, which showed that this could um, improve the brains of mice, that these mice who were put on a 5-2 diet, they produced a substance called BDNF, and that led to stronger memories, new brain cells being formed. So I thought I'd like that, as well as, you know, potentially doing something about my diabetes. So I made the film. In the course of it, I put myself on the 5-2 diet. I lost 10 kilos. My diabetes went away. My blood sugars returned to normal. And uh, they've stayed that way for the last four years since. And then I wrote the book, which was called The 5-2 Diet or The Fast Diet in Different Countries. And it was very popular. And I think it's popular because it's quite a simple principle. And also because the first half of the book is all about the science. Now, one of the criticisms, or potential criticisms, is the one you describe, which is that this might lead to some form of eating disorder. I've spoken, and I spoke before I wrote the book, with all the experts, including Mark Matson, 
who is the leading neuroscientist in the world, pretty much. He has had more studies published, they're more cited, and he said there is no evidence whatsoever that this form of dieting, intermittent fasting, will lead to anorexia or eating disorders. I mean, that said, I do not recommend people do it who already have an existing disorder, but there is not a shred of evidence that I have come across. And when you look at communities who practice fasting, and that is... Muslim communities, Hindus, Christians, these are not the communities where you see high rates of anorexia. It just isn't the case. Anorexia is a really terrible disease. It is unfortunately quite common. It is very lethal, but it is really complicated and it rarely has anything to do with um, the actual process of losing weight. It's more about control in the end. So I'm, I feel very safe in the recommendations um, to say that this is not going to lead to that sort of thing. Now, not everybody is going to do the 5-2 diet and enjoy doing it. Some people uh, said it just made them mad with rage on the days when they were doing the two days. Other people say it worked brilliantly. And that's the truth, is no one diet is going to work for everyone. But I've had so much positive response from doctors, from you know the general public. I have a website called The, F- the Fast Diet. And you go there and there are tens of thousands of people who have filled in questionnaires and um, we've been tracking them now for about four years. And the vast majority lose the weight, keep it off, and they also see other improvements. The thing about the BDNF, it almost, I mean, in this way, fasting could resemble exercise. Absolutely. And it's exactly the same mechanism, according to Professor Mark Matson, that uh, if you exercise and you fast. Both of them are actually quite stressful, but it turns out that stress is actually quite a good way if you get the right sort of stress. And as you know, uh, exercise leads to the release of BDNF as well. So uh, Professor Matson is a very keen runner. He fasts, but he does a lot of exercise as well because he absolutely passionately believes in it and because his father also developed uh, dementia. So he has a family history and he has motivation. He has motivation, yes, of course. So what do you think of the 5-2 diet? Well, I'm not an expert on diet, so for what it's worth, uh, I think it's it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. We have not been developed to eat 8 in the morning and 12 at noon and 6 in the evening and Snickers in between. We we must have evolved uh, to, to have periods where we can't find any food. So it makes a lot of evolutionary sense, I think. And then also you've seen the, the data from on mice where they prolong their lives if you keep them on a calorie restriction. But the other day I had this, this discussion with an um, anesthesiologist and he said that when people come into ICU unit, intensive care units, and they're really severely sick, they're really unstable, then you would guess that you should give them a lot of energy so they could fight off the infection or whatever they suffer from. And he said, that's just not the case. If you give them a lot of energy, then they tend to die. So you should keep them on a, They almost starve them during the first 24 hours, perhaps as low as 600 calories. And and for some reason, they, they survive in high rates then. So, for, I mean, there are many data points, I think, that that really suggests that being hungry part of the time is, is beneficial for your health. It's very interesting because there is another enormous study going on looking at using intermittent fasting or some form of fasting before you have chemotherapy. This works incredibly well in mice, and they're now doing the studies in humans. And one of the reasons seems to be that if you're going in for chemotherapy, then uh, what you really want is you want the cancer cells to be going rapidly and the normal cells to be growing slowly so the chemo can really, it really mm-hmm. hits the rapidly growing cells. And it turns out that if you fast uh, the day before, the day of, and the day after chemo, 
then what happens is the normal cells slow right down. But the cancer cells keep on rampaging. Ah, so you can give higher doses of chemo uh, and, uh, and they get more benefit. I think it makes sense biologically. It really does. Yes. So it's really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It it is, is it it's is. all this stuff. Okay. So Anders, tell me a little bit about your background. I was born in, in Stockholm and um, I'm a medical doctor. I was educated at the Karolinska. I also, also had a degree in economics from the Stockholm School of Economics. And, and uh, I'm a psychiatrist. And then I've been writing a lot about the medical research during the last 15 years. And then I wrote two books. The first one with a, co- with a colleague from Karolinska Institute called, called Johan Sundberg. It's called Prescription for Health. And the second one came out this summer. It's called Brain Power. Jan Stark in Swedish, um, and it's about how the brain is affected by physical activity. That's very funny because I studied politics and philosophy and economics at Oxford University. Oh, really? Uh, once upon a time, and uh, then I worked, I worked as a banker uh, oh, really? for several years. I did, I did a couple of summers, and then I just, this is not for me. I'm not one of those guys. Yeah, same here. It really didn't interest me in the end. I had these moments when I think how rich I could have been if I'd stayed there, but yeah, I decided that wasn't how I wanted to spend my life. And then I went from there into medicine. And uh, I was actually trained to become a psychiatrist there you go, when I left and went into television. So I, I got dissolution. I wasn't convinced that I was doing anything good. Uh, this was in the 80s, and it was fairly grim in the National Health Service. So many of my colleagues left England at that time. We had a reunion recently, 30 years, and less than half of them are working for the NHS now. So uh, I went in to join the BBC, uh, and I spent 30 years at the BBC now. 10 years as a director, 10 years as an executive producer, and now 10 years as a presenter. What's brought your interest in, in displaying science to the public? I think it was just curiosity. I w- used to watch a programme called Horizon, which is a science programme, and I thought I would love to make programmes like that. So I thought I will just do this for a little bit and then I will go back into psychiatry but that was a long time ago so it's not going to happen and the first Horizon film I ever made was about a guy called Barry Marshall who was an Australian doctor who was convinced that stomach ulcers are caused by a he won Nobel Prize but when I made the film about him what I loved about him was he was convinced his bacteria caused ulcers doctors were convinced it was caused by stress Uh, the pharmaceutical companies had a solution a drug called uh, Zantac, and uh, it was a perfect drug, because as long as you took it, the ulcer went away. As soon as when you stopped taking it, the ulcer came back and you had to have your stomach removed. So, and it affected rich people in rich countries. So along comes Barry, and he says, it's not caused by stress. I can cure you with antibiotics in a week for $10. And this was not popular. And the way, he, the way he proved it is by swallowing it and inducing ulcers That's himself. serious science. Exactly. And so I made a film about him went out on Horizon, and it was rubbished by the medical profession. I got a review in the British Medical Journal saying this is one-sided and tendentious. And 10 years later, he won the Nobel Prize. But I got 50,000 letters and faxes after that, and we produced a little simple fact sheet saying, this is how you cure ulcers, uh, and here's the three antibiotics you need to take. And I saw somebody the other day who came to a talk, and she said, I saw your film when you made it 25 years ago. And I was in the city, I was a lawyer... I was told I had to give up my job, that I had to go on a lifetime of bland food and I had to do meditation and do my brain and things like that because it was all about my stress levels. She said, I followed your advice, I took the antibiotics and within a week I was cured and I've never had a problem since. 
was it the impact from that program that made you want to stay in television? Yes. You, you realized how much I can affect people by that. Absolutely. I realized it was a massive effect. It also made me really interested in self-experimentation. So I then pitched an idea uh, as a director called The History of Medicine Told Through Self-Experimenters because a lot of the great breakthroughs, like in anesthetics, were done by doctors doing it to themselves. Mm. And I pitched that for every controller for every year for 15 years, and they all said no. Then I eventually got in front of one, and she said, that's interesting. Uh, Who's going to present it? And I said, I have no idea. And she said, why don't you do it? So that's how I became presenter. And then an awful lot of things I've done since have involved self-experimentation. So I owe it all to uh, Dr. Barry Marshall, Nobel Prize laureate. And he told me that he can nominate me now for a Nobel Prize as long as I do something. (laughs) (laughs) You you have to be in science. I had to do do something worth. But because he's a Nobel laureate, he can nominate other people. He could nominate you if you want. It's a good person to know. Chapter 2. The Treadmill Instead of a Pill? Uh, you've been here in, in Stockholm now for, for a couple of days, and you've been here before. Uh, tell us your picture on the health of, of the Swedes, especially compared to, your, to, to the UK. You see, I would have bet money that the Swedes were much healthier than people in the UK. Why would you? Uh, because you have a reputation for being, you know, slim and gorgeous uh, and very healthy. And I think... Uh, many of the people I've seen in Stockholm, um, I suspect this is not universal. And um, I've been looking at the statistics on Swedish health. And that's partly because I've written a new book, which is called The Blood Sugar Diet. And this is specifically looking at type 2 diabetics. because And people who have pre-diabetes raise blood sugar levels. And that was the reason why I wrote The 5-2 Diet in the first place. Though, oddly enough, I never really wrote about diabetics because I didn't understand the mechanisms and there wasn't enough data, there weren't enough studies. Since then, um, I came across the work of, um, in Newcastle of Professor Roy Taylor and he's shown that if you take type 2 diabetics and you put them on a 800-calorie diet for eight weeks, then they lose 14 kilos, very high compliance, people stick to it. But the really good thing is that around 85% are able to get their diabetes under control and return it to normal, which is phenomenal. And, and nobody... It's in such a short period. It really surprises me. It's it just is. eight weeks. It's... And some people, obviously, you need to be longer, depending on, you know, he's done quite a few trials now. And the evidence, however, is obviously the longer you have been a diabetic, um, the less likely it is to work. So if people have been diabetic for more than 10 years, then uh, there's a 50% chance. But even that is surprisingly high, uh, considering most doctors believe that diabetes is a progressive disease, it is incurable. Basically, um, patients are told, certainly in the UK, start a medication, that's it. So I was looking at the rates of diabetes and pre-diabetes in Sweden, and I was surprised by how high they are. Because, as I said, I I imagined you all terribly healthy. Uh, The official figures uh, are the rates of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, 5.8% went up to 6.8% in the last six years. So it's gone up by 17%. I spoke to Professor Brismar from the Karolinska Institute, who is one of your leading diabetes specialists, and she thinks this is probably a gross underestimate of the real figures. And then you have what are called the pre-diabetics, who are those who are not yet diabetic, and they are 17 to 20% of the population. That means that around 30% of the Swedish population at least have a problem with their blood sugar levels. And this is 
the population from the age of 20 upwards. So when you start hitting the age of 50, then it's probably closer to half. So I think you have a serious problem and you don't know it yet. What, what struck me when I read the book was about the way we view lifestyle in general and how medicine is considered as pills, pharmacology. And, and I see that in my case in psychiatry where everything is focused on, on medicines. And of course, lifestyle is important. I mean, that's anything else would be crazy. But it's we trivialize it because it's not a pill. Of course, no one can make money on it, but it doesn't seem as high tech or, or anything. I think the problem very clearly is that doctors don't get any training in it. I don't know if you got any training in nutrition. Very little, very little. We got exotic diseases. Uh, berry, berry, you know, really exotic deficiency diseases, but nothing at all. And my son is at medical school and he gets nothing. I've spoken to Australian doctors, American doctors. Nobody gets any training at all in nutrition. People kind of think that it's important, but they know nothing about it and they know nothing about exercise. So all they can do is go eat less, do more exercise. That's what a doctor will tell you when you go. They don't tell you how to do it. And it's like saying the way you win at football is by scoring more goals on the other side. It is true, but it's completely useless as a piece of advice. And I saw a survey recently of American cardiologists who were asked about their knowledge of nutrition. And most of them admitted they knew very little. And the ones who thought they knew a lot, knew very, they were wrong. Most of what they advised their patients was completely wrong. And I find that very, very strange. Why do you think then that, that we live in such a pharmacological age? Is it due to money? or oh, it's, it's clearly due to money, and it's also clearly due to arrogance. Uh, the doctors do not, and the medical profession, do not regard nutrition as a real science. They do not regard exercise as a real science. These are kind of, you know, slightly quacky people down there. And they are not prepared to give time in the five years at medical school to actually teaching people what I would regard as absolutely essential skills. And so I find that very depressing. And in the UK, my wife is a doctor, a family doctor, and uh, she gets paid by the state to put patients on medication. She does not get paid to help them lose weight or to do exercise. So her practice actually loses money if she does that. Because in Britain, we have targets. And if you don't give diabetics medication, then you get money taken away. You may be saving the state $20,000, $30,000 a year, but the state will actually take another $10,000 away for you for helping someone to lose weight. How mad is that? Oh, those are crazy incentives. Those really are. I, I got a lot of comments from my book from colleagues, and they said that I didn't know that about the, this really serious antidepressants effect from exercise and so on. So, And then they started implementing it. So in, in a lot of ways, I think it's, of course, it's money, but it's also people don't know it because we're not educated. And I, I remember we had three weeks on the mitochondria and then like two hours on exercise or something in med school. That's Why did you decide to write Prescription for Health? Well, it was... I had this constant discussion with Karl-Johan Sundberg. He was a professor at Kerlinska in, in physiology. And he's also... Um, He studied ex sports exercise physiology and gene expression uh, related to that. And he's, we always said that these data are phenomenal. It, it helps for everything. I mean, lowers the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, but also cancer and so on. It slows aging. It affects your genes and the brain, of course, and all that. And if, if this was a pill, it would be so heavily marketed. And now it's just in the health column. 
at best. So we said we wanted to present this science, this fantastic science, but we wanted to make it really accessible, but still correct. So that's why we, we, we said there, there, are, there isn't such a book, so then we have to write it. And then we contacted uh, Bonnier and they said, sure, write it. And it, it took a while because everything had to be 100% accurate. I mean, not a word. We, we knew that everyone would check it. So it took a while, but it, it gained a lot of attention, and, and uh, which was fantastic, actually. was able to get through the media, and I was, I was a bit surprised by that, but it's fantastic, of course. Did you receive any criticism? No, not a word, actually. Not a single word, and not for the new book, uh, neither, actually. I'm, I'm a bit surprised to say, and, and it's been almost surreal these last months. It came out in July, and people have come up on the street on almost a daily basis and said that this has changed my life, and, and this has changed my view on exercise, and now I do it every day, and I have had problems with anxiety for all my life, and, and now it's gone, and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm a bit, I don't know what to say to, to these people. I say, well, I haven't changed your life. You've, you've changed your life, but... But but it's uh, there's clearly a, sort of a hunger from the public to to learn more about these things. Why do you think it had that impact? Because there have been plenty of other books out about exercise. Well, that's a good question. I think that first of all, people are obsessed with exercise, and, and a lot of people are interested about the brain. I was in New York and met with Eric Kandel in, in uh, May, who's a neuroscientist and Nobel laureate, and and he said that during the last two or three years, we've seen an explosion in. in and people's interest in the brain, and, and for some reason, maybe it's become, becoming more secular and, and less religious. It's got something to do with spirituality and thing, or something like that. So, and, and both of these, these things, the exercise and the brain, sort of intersected within this book. But I also I wrote a lot about evolution from it, because I think evolutionary biology is really exciting, and it really explains a lot about human nature. And I was afraid that people was going to think that that was, you know, these are just people on the savanna and ancestors and no one is interested in that. But a lot of people actually turned out that they were and that made sense. It put the whole thing into perspective. It became common sense to people that, of course, we should move. We're designed to move. 99.5% of our evolution has been absolutely vital to, for survival to move. And now we can order food on, on the internet, but that's not the way we're designed or, or, or the way we have to evolve, I should say. I must admit, I agree that um, once you persuade people uh, if you give them an argument, you present the information, you really grab them, then they're much more likely to do what it is you ask them to do effectively in the sex. There was an American president who said that once you grab somebody by the balls, everything else will follow. And so you have to grab them emotionally and you also have to yes, grab them yes. intellectually. And, 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 I mean, there's so many motive. There, there's a gazillion motivation coaches and whatever you call it out there, and I'm just not one of them. I just want to present the facts, and these are the facts. This is how important it is. And then you make your own decisions, and for some reason that seems to work. I think so. that um, when you said why are people interested in the brain, I think it may well be the fact that we all know we're going to be living longer, that there is no sign yet the ageing process is slowing down. We are, on average, getting... Uh, living one year longer every four years. Yes. So in the last, you know, 40 years, we yes. have put on 10 years. And most people do not want to spend those last 20 years dribbling or demented or mm -hmm. having problems memorising things. And I think that's probably it's much greater awareness uh, of the effect of lifestyle on the brain and what's going to happen to you in, when you're 60, 70, 80. And so I think that's probably it. And that's also my motivation 
because, as I said, my father started to go demented towards the end, and I don't want to go down that road. I want to keep my brain in some decent sort of shape. So you're absolutely right, it's exercise. I also think that intermittent fasting plays some role uh, and eating better. I am convinced that there are clearly some diets which are beneficial. I know there are some diets which are terrible because when I went to interview uh, Professor Mark Matson, he has these little mice which have been genetically engineered so that they will develop dementia. And when he put them, normally they develop it at about the age of one, which is the equivalent of a sort of 50-year-old. Uh, when he put them on the 5-2 diet, they developed it at the age of two, which is the equivalent of a 100-year-old, right at the end. Mm. And when he put them on a fast-food diet, a McDonald's-type diet, six a junk food something. diet, it was around six to nine months, which was the equivalent of a 35-year-old. Mm. And again, when he chopped their brains open, those on the 5-2 diet, they had lots of new brain cells. Those on the junk food diet, their brains really didn't look good at all, particularly in the areas associated with memory. So clearly, food has a dramatic impact. Uh, on mental health, I think, and on mood and things like that. So maybe we should collaborate yeah, on a future definitely. book. Well, we have to write such a book. We have to write such a book. Do you see any evidence that the young are becoming more sedentary, they're moving less in Sweden? I don't have the data on it, but I see from my friends and their kids that they're, they're, I mean, their tablets and the phones are heroin to them. They, they, they can't stay away from them. So, But it, will they become more sedentary in a five- to ten-year perspective? I'm not sure because you have this you have Pokemon Go, for instance. I think that's fantastic. That makes a lot of kids want to move. So you have to use new technology in this sense. I'm not sure whether it, was, it will continue to become just more and more and more sedentary every year. I'm not sure about that. What do you think? Uh, well, I think that... Uh I think I'm hoping we have hit peak sedentary, that um, if we haven't, then <laughs> we're facing an apocalypse. It's going yeah. to be really, really terrible because we know that sedentariness is the beginning of type 2 diabetes frequently. It's the fact that the reason you have muscles is to power you and those muscles will suck the sugar out of your blood. And if it doesn't happen, you don't have the muscles, then it just gets deposited as fat or worse, it builds up as fat in your liver and it leads to all those future problems. Interestingly, uh, when I was talking to Professor uh, Brisma, she said that if you want to avoid type 2 diabetes, in men, exercise is really important. In women, it's keeping the waist gut fat. Clearly, a combination is best, but she said it's not. Uh, there are gender differences. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm, I'm fascinated by, I must make exercise because I make quite a few programs about it. I do a series called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And I also wrote a book, uh, Fast Exercise, yes. about the benefits of high-intensity training, short bursts. I was wondering what you thought of that. Oh, I, I thought it was a great book, and I tried it. And it, for me, it worked wonders when it comes to my, my fitness level. I, but but uh, And also, I, I lost a few kilos. I did 30 seconds, total, absolutely maximum and then I waited for about one and a half, two minutes, and then I did these uh, 30 seconds again, and then I did it four times, and that's it. And I, But I was exhausted. I was blood coming out of my mouth afterwards. So, but it really worked wonders. It, it really, really, really did. I was going to say, if you're, uh, unless you, you look very fit already, but unless you're very fit, I recommend you start. The way I did it, or I was recommended to do it um, when I made a program about it, which was called The Truth About Exercise, uh, was to get on an exercise bike, you warm up for a little bit, and then you go to maximum resistance, and then you go flat out mm. for about 20 seconds, have a breather, 
do it again, 20 seconds, have a breather, do it again, 20 seconds. So that's one minute of hard exercise, do it three times a week. And when this professor told me I could get much fitter, I didn't believe it. But my insulin sensitivity improved by 25%. My aerobic fitness improved by uh, another 15%. And that was over six weeks just doing that. But uh, if you are not fit, then you really want to start with 10 seconds. Because as you say, it's tough. And you have to be careful, of course, with, yeah. with, with injuries. But, but there's really strong data for, from many studies now that it works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everyone, of course, but yeah. it works for a lot of people. And it's extremely efficient. And I, I spoke to Col Yuan about this. Well, how could this be? And, and one of the regulators of, of uh, mitochondria production is, seems to be really sensible to, to extreme uh, exercise. Uh, and there was a guy after a, a lecture last week, and he's, he's a physiotherapist, and he told me that he's been hunting with the Hadza tribe in Kenya. He went down there and, and stayed a couple of days with them, and, and they were, that, that was interval training. They were hanging out all day, and then was explosions in activity for about a couple of minutes, and then they were calming down. And he's, he was exhausted from it. But so, so maybe since, and also an evolutionary perspective, we tend to mimic that with, with, with uh, interval training. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, all great athletes have been doing it for 70 or 80 years. What's new is it's being introduced into the sort of wider community. It, there are much more extreme versions. 30 seconds is really tough. 20 seconds is easier. 10 seconds is manageable for most people. But you're absolutely right. That's what the Hadza do. They essentially kind of keep moving. They're quite mobile. They probably walk on average around... 10 to 15 kilometers a day, maybe more, but they have brief moments, but they really go for it. Plus they do strength exercises. So they break things open, they use their muscles. And that's the other side of it, isn't it? There's the endurance yes. stuff, but there's strength. What surprised you most about the effects of exercise on the brain when you were researching your book? Well, that it affected so many areas so profoundly that it was just, I mean, everyone knows that we feel better, but it affected stress tolerance, it affected creativity, it affected memory, and, and it was just so many cognitive areas, and it slowed aging and, and ability to focus, and kids with ADHD could actually reduce their medication if, the, if they exercised before. So, so, so that surprised me. And then I constantly thought that, okay, if, if the effects on creativity, for instance, if that was could be obtained from a pill. Everyone would know about it. It would be so heavily marketed. And now it was just one area, creativity, and then you had all the others. And then, of course, you had the effects on the body, of course. And it was just, why don't we get it? It's, it's really pretty simple. I mean, there is a simple solution to a lot of medical problems. Just get out and move. And we trivialize it because we think about the fitness industry. Why have society come to such a place where, where we start to trivialize the most important thing we can do? That's I, think, I think there are two complications. One, as you say, is there's no money or limited money in this area. And the money is focused at the fitness industry, buying better shoes. And if you're middle-aged and you look at all these beautiful young people uh, in the adverts and in the gym, you probably find it incredibly intimidating. So you're not going to go there. But the other is that we have no primary, primal drive to do exercise. Exactly. Because in the good old days, when we were on the savannah, you wanted to conserve energy. There is nothing which tells you. And the other side of it is we do have a primal drive to eat Lots and lots, exactly. and to keep on eating. Exactly. So, unfortunately, we are absolutely fighting our biology. And therefore, we have to find ways around it. And I think, the, the, for me, it's all about building it into your life. 
So I have some rules for myself. For example, I always take the stairs. If it's less than 10 floors, I always take the stairs in a hotel. I'm really pleased in Sweden because you have good staircases. I had a very uh, odd period when I was taking photographs of stairways because I just wanted to sort of shame because there are so many hotels which are terrible. You go round the back. The only place you can go up is round the back where it smells of urine. It's sort of what I really want to do is I want to put the smell of urine and BO in the lifts and have these really attractive big staircases right in front of you. And it will be that will persuade people perhaps to actually do it. Yes, city planners should really take these things into account. And I mean, the, the thing you said about how we're designed to, to put on weight and, and, and to gain calories, of course, calories has been expensive and hard to get by. And that's why calorie-rich food it tastes so good. It, 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 and then you all of a sudden you put that that person into, into society. It works well on Savannah, but it puts a person into a world where calories are cheap. Or, 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 or Then it's, it, it's a, almost a miracle not everyone is overweight. And, and, I mean, it makes total sense to stay in, in the sofa and going on sapping for another show because you should save your energy. So, so, so we are lazy by nature. It's, it's, uh, and then you have to find ways around it. And, and society planning should probably take more account of it. And, and, and I mean, schools... In Sweden, kids have about two days... They, they have school gymnastics two hours every week. And, and that's too little. I mean, it, it, it boosts their ability to learn, the ability to learn math and, and English and Swedish and so on and so forth. And, and people just don't want to deal with it because they think of schools as, as gymnastics as sports or, you know, being picked for the football team and things like, things like that. So uh, we really missed something here, I think. What would your top tips be to somebody who is currently not doing as much activity as they should? to actually make themselves do it in a consistent way. Yeah, well, my advice would be to, to learn more about the effects on, on the body and the brain from it, and then it will become natural to move. I, I had this... Uh, I've been talking to a lot of people about the book and so on during the last months, and there's always people come up and say, I, I did not know this, and, and I did not know how important it was for the brain, and I did not know this evolutionary reason why it makes total sense. And the people who say that is often the ones that you would guess never exercise. So once they understand that kind of logic, they just say, okay, I don't like exercising, but I, will, I have to do it. And then they start by doing something, and then after a while it becomes easier, and then they notice that they feel better and they're less stressed, and then they just keep on. Then it starts becoming a habit. But they have to start somewhere, and I think the best way to start is to learn more about this, because then it, then it becomes natural. But perhaps I'm a bit naive in that sense. No, I absolutely believe that that's what people need. They need to be convinced first, um, intellectually convinced, if you like, emotionally convinced, and yeah. then they will do something about it. And there is a slightly nihilistic approach amongst doctors who have abandoned hope. So the reason they hand over medication is they no longer believe that the patients uh, will follow any advice to lose weight or do more exercise. And I think that's probably because they, the advice they give is very poor and they do it without conviction. So if I'm a patient and you basically look me in the eye and go, mm, do more exercise, uh, you know, eat less, I'm not going to do anything about it because you've given me nothing to go on. Whereas if I do give you this pill and say, it's great, it'll work marvellously for you, next please, then um, you're probably going to do it. But the reality, as we know, is that most medication is largely ineffective. There is a placebo effect, uh, there are side effects. Uh, if you're a pharmaceutical company, then, you know, 
they are thrilled, obviously, I imagine. Anybody who's into diabetes is thrilled because this is a wide worldwide epidemic. Uh, type 2 diabetes is not great in Sweden, but in places like the Middle East, China, 25% of the population are currently diabetic. China, around 100 million diabetics. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, all your Christmases have arrived at the same time because this is going to be a massive, massive market. If you're Chinese, not so good. Chapter 3. 50 years from today. And um, how long would you like to live for? Well, I'm, I'm, I would, with, with dementia and things like that, I mean, I have to take that into account, but otherwise I'd like to be 110 or 20 or something. Right? <laughs> I'd like to be, uh, or even, even older, but it, it depends on how your brain works, of course. How about you? I, I'm actually quite happy to be... No male member of my family has gone beyond 74. So I'm quite happy, frankly, to be anything beyond 74 will be a record. But like you, I don't just want to hit 74 or 80. I want to get there with my brain intact because my brain is my favorite organ, to be honest. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to meet uh, a lot of great scientists during the last years because we have a podcast and a co- colleagues. We met with Eric Kandel and we met with... Uh, with, with James Flynn of the Flynn effect, uh, and and these guys are in their eighties or nineties even, and we said what they're and they're very productive and they're extremely smart and they you know they they think like thirty four year olds very fast in their, their thoughts and I always ask them what's the trick how do you do it how, how do you keep it up for so long, and everyone says the same thing stay curious read a lot, and go running that's what everyone says. Do you think that the interest from the public has increased during the last years when it comes to medicine and health and so on and so forth? I think without a doubt. I think two things have happened. I think that the public are more interested. Uh, and, Why is that? And I think the, the doctors are more aware of their limitations. I think the public has become more interested because there's more stuff in the newspapers, more stuff on the television. I think they're also more confused. Because certainly in England, the popular newspapers, the tabloids, tend to run contrasting stories. So one day, you know, fish is good, next day it's bad mm. because it has mercury. One day exercise is really good for you, the next day it's going to make you drop dead. So I think they are yeah. quite confused. That's why you need serious books about this. Because if you look on PubMed or, or medical database, you could basically find support for anything. But you have to dig deep and see what is what can we really say about exercise or about diets and what 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 what's what's a lot of what what claims does have a lot of support not just from one study but from several good studies and that's difficult that's why you need medical journalists really digging deep and really focusing on this i think so 50 years from now uh how do you think our diets will look i am both optimistic and pessimistic so if i'm in an optimistic phase i think that it will be like smoking. It has taken us 50 years. I think the first person to really suggest that smoking was bad for you was Adolf Hitler. Uh, and that was not a, clearly a great role model. <laughs> it was um, only when they started doing studies in really the 50s and 60s because people believed, um, certainly back then, that it was caused, um, lung cancer was caused by cars. It was city pollution. Nobody really believed that what everybody was doing, smoking cigarettes, was going to be bad for you. So I think it takes a long, long time. So the optimistic part of me thinks that we will have learnt better ways to control our needs, our urges, our appetites and things like that. I don't know what the food is going to look like. I hope it looks 
less processed than it does now. I hope it looks more natural. I hope it looks more sustainable. It seems to be going in that direction. Absolutely. But at the same time, there is huge pressure being put on in places like China. This is going in that direction in places like Sweden and the UK. But in places like China and India, they're beginning to consume meat. They're beginning to consume processed food. If you're a manufacturer, if you are Coca-Cola, if you are any of those big conglomerates, this is, you're not going to go quietly into the night, uh, just as the, the tobacco companies just shifted their focus. Yeah. They moved from one market to another market. Yeah, so I'm, cynical. I'm certain that that's what's going to happen. I think if you look on exercise in 50 years, it, it's, I'd like to have the optimistic view as well, but I think it may be... And, and, it, it, and I also think that we could... Related to to what what's happened with smoking, it, it was clear in the sixties that it was dangerous, but it took decades before people actually stopped smoking, and and now it's very clear to the public that it's it's important to move, but it's going to take a while before before these things starts to sink in. So that's why you have to repeat it, but it may become a class issue. So socio economical factors might be. I mean, and that that would be very sad. I think if you just have people with a lot of money spending it on on moving and exercise, and you have poor people buying cheap, bad, calorie rich food, and so on and so forth. And and, and it is already that we're already in that. But that could become worse. I think it could. I mean, I'm sort of optimistic again there because my work, my wife works as a doctor in a very deprived area. And she sees a lot of people who are on the brink of becoming diabetic. And they understand it. She has to allocate her own time to give advice because she's not paid to do this. So she has to add a couple of extra hours a day into her workday. But she believes in it. And she says they get it. That when you talk to them, you persuade them. Sometimes she gives them copies of my book. She gives other information. Uh, these, they, they understand. And that eating healthily is, does not have to be more expensive than eating cheaply. No. Uh, but you have to reach... Funnily enough, probably the dietitians, the doctors, people like that first, in a way. And then you reach the other population, the rest of the population. I agree. I think there is a significant risk that we're going to end up preaching to the people who are ready, exactly, who are ready healthy and ignoring the rest. But as I said, I I, I am optimistic. If we get out there, we shout, we go on the newspapers, you know, whatever it might be, I make television programs. You reach eventually you kind of reach pretty well everyone. But the other thing I really think is critical, and that would be interesting, is um, changing the urban landscape. So particularly for exercise, also for food. Um, Clearly at the moment, we have an insane situation where we subsidise the foods that make us sick. Mm -hmm. So we subsidise corn manufacturing growing and things like that. The only good thing that I can see about global warming is it's going to make corn, it's going to devastate the corn industry. So uh, maybe we'll be eating less of those sort of sugary, syrupy things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I interestingly like tobacco. One of the reasons that smoking rates have fallen so dramatically in Sweden, is because you have snooze. In the UK, it's because we have vaping. I don't know what the equivalent of uh, sugar is yet. I've tried all the artificial sugars, and they taste terrible. Mm-hmm. I have yet to find the, 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 the sugar equivalent of vaping. Uh, even vaping is not the same as cigarette smoking. I did it for an, an experiment. I've never smoked in my life, but I took up heavy vaping just to see what effect it would have. And it was, it was just tedious, to be honest. It didn't, it didn't do anything for me. But people who, uh, my cameraman, who had been smoking 20 a day, he took up vaping on the same day I did. And that was two years ago, and he's not touched a cigarette since. How about taxes on sugar? 
Absolutely. I think that's probably the only way to go. It's the same thing with tobacco. Taxes on tobacco, you make it socially unacceptable. Uh, you limit the places you can buy it. Uh, you do everything. You throw everything at it. And the reason you throw everything at it is it's really the only way to go. I do think, particularly with sort of sugary foods, uh, that they are highly addictive. And so, uh, particularly if you start out young. Quite apart from anything else, I've had almost every tooth in my face filled, drilled and replaced uh, because when I was a child I used to just slurp sugary drinks all the time and I used to eat sugary and my parents, God bless them, didn't do anything to stop me. I, they, either they weren't aware of the risks, I don't know. So irrespective of anything else, it might save your teeth. How did you raise your own kids in, in that sense? Uh, banned. Banned all sugary drinks. You did? Yeah, absolutely. They don't even get fruit juice. Because fruit juice, as far as I can see, is just a sugar delivery system. I'm sure they go out and they eat junk. In my house, we don't have any junk in the house, mainly because otherwise I would eat it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I have to throw it away also. I, I can't have it in, 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 the, in, in my kitchen. I, I, well, it, it's too tempting. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is, again, 20 years ago, people used to come back from holiday and as a present or a treat, they would give out boxes of cigarettes. You would go to work and you yeah. would give a box of cigarettes. You would never do that now, no. ever. No. And so, but we still give cakes, we give biscuits. Yes. I'm not sure what the alternative is. As my, my wife says in her surgery, you know, that's what patients do when they're grateful. They give you a cake. And yeah. um, some of the staff are seriously overweight. In 20 years, maybe they give a book or something. <laughs> I, I mean, these t things yeah. take time. It, it does. Exactly. It doesn't happen overnight. So, so, but I think it's going in the right direction. I would say that. But that's my view here in Sweden, of course. I, I haven't been... I've been to Hong Kong, but I haven't been to see mainland China. So, and, and those areas, if you, on, a, on a huge perspective, those are the ones you should focus on, of course. But that's... Absolutely. And um, I was in Vietnam recently, and I was talking to a surgeon there. And he said they're, they're cutting off more legs because of type 2 diabetes in Vietnam, then they were cut off legs due to landmines during the height of the Vietnam War. Oh, really? Yes. In other parts of the world, it is catastrophic. Absolutely catastrophic. Yeah. So uh, we have it bad, they have it appalling. It's, it's really, I mean, it's really weird that for the first time in history, people are dying, more people are dying from eating too much than starving. Absolutely. And it is also, you know, from an ecological point of view, from a sustainable yeah. point of view, yeah. this is really not possible. At the moment, I'm trying to get into seaweed. But seaweed is a fantastic sustainable food. The trouble is it tastes terrible. Okay. So, so, so I'm playing around with different recipes. It's also good, good for your sort of, you know, your gut and things like that. And it's, uh, I've also tried eating insects. Which is not, <laughs> uh, which is quite big in the the Far East. You know, yeah. they have. Uh, uh, I went to uh, Holland, and there was a chef there. And uh, unfortunately, in Holland, you can buy insects to eat, but they cost more than prime steak, and they taste terrible, terrible, terrible. Okay. I, I uh, they were trying to persuade me that locusts. They were trying to rebrand them oh. as flying prawns, but uh, I think they have some work to do. Okay, I'm not there yet. I, I haven't tried that yet. So. Yeah. That was all from this episode of Speaking of Stories. My name is Dr. Michael Mosley. And I'm Dr. Anders Hansen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Speaking of Stories, conversations between authors. Listen to all of our episodes on iTunes or Acast and follow us on Instagram, speaking underscore of underscore stories. <laughs>